This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners. Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities sure to pique your curiosity. I am your host, Brittany, and welcome to episode 118. This episode is coming to you on Valentine's Day, so the topic this week is killer couples. Make sure you hop over to Facebook and Instagram to see episode pictures, announcements, fun little posts and memes, and pictures of the hump day treat. Our hump day treat this week is brought to us by Louder Bakery. Since it's Mardi Gras season, it's only fitting to do a king cake. So I have one of their blueberries and cream king cakes. This flavor is by far one of my favorites. So thank you, Louder. And happy hump day, y'all. So last week's episode was just a little short for my liking. So this week when I wrote out my story and realized it was probably going to be about the same length of time, I decided to go ahead and add another story to our topic I landed on the topic of killer couples, you know, Valentine's Day and all. And the first story is about Ray and Faye Copeland. I'd never heard this story before. And I started kind of just Googling, you know, murderous couples and came across this one. And sadly, I didn't have more information than what I'm about to give you. But I thought it was super interesting. While most grandparents take up knitting or fly fishing in their golden years, elderly couple Ray and Faye Copeland had other ideas. The couple became serial killers in their 70s and were the oldest couple in the United States ever sentenced to death. Of course, that information is what grabbed my attention. Ray Copeland was born in Oklahoma in 1914. Ray's family never spent much time in the same place. When he was a child, his family was constantly moving on the hunt for employment. He ended up dropping out of school during the Great Depression to help his family. Frustrated with poverty, Ray began scamming people out of property and money, and in 1939, he was caught and sentenced to a year in jail. Shortly after his release in 1940, he met Faye Wilson. So if you want to go ahead and pop over and look at the pictures, I have a picture of Ray and Faye early in their relationship. They look like such a sweet, happy young couple. The couple married, had several children, and moved to the Ozarks in Arkansas. I have another picture, um, if you want to take a moment to look at that, of the Copeland family. It's the only one that I found of a majority of the family. And of course, this one is more current than, than the previous but I'm assuming that's uh, two son. Their two sons and a daughter. Um, but I couldn't find, you know, exactly how many children they had. And I'm pretty sure my grandma Joan had that same shirt that Miss Faye's wearing. <laughs> Soon, Ray began supporting his growing family by stealing from livestock ranchers by writing bad checks at auction. 
While this may have been his chosen profession, he wasn't very good at it. He was constantly getting arrested and did several stints in jail. His scam was not very slick. He would buy cattle at auctions, write fraudulent checks, sell the cattle, and try to leave town before the auctioneers were informed that the checks were bad. If he failed to leave town in time, he would promise to make the checks good, but never followed through. In time, he was banned from buying and selling livestock. He needed a scam that would allow him to operate despite the ban, one that he could profit from, and that the police could not trace back to him. Ray began hiring vagrants and drifters to work on his farm. He set up checking accounts for them with a $2,000 deposit, then sent them to buy livestock with bad checks from their accounts. Copeland then sold the livestock, and the drifters would be fired and sent on their way. This kept the police off his back for a while, but in time, he was caught and returned to jail. When he got out, he went back to the same scam, but this time he made sure the hired help would never be caught or even heard from again. His neighbors in Missouri, where the family had relocated to, were suspicious of him and kept their distance. Ray was described as a tyrant and control freak who was violent against those closest to him. The neighbors despised him and believed he was verbally and physically violent against his wife and their children. Faye, being a conservative housewife, always stuck by her husband, despite Ray's violent behavior and outbursts. I have another picture of the couple um, of them that is a little more current. Ray has, <laughs> Ray has got his uh, cowboy hat and pearl snaps on, but neither one of them look very happy to be there. In October 1989, Missouri police received a tip. A man named Jack McCormick called the Crime Stoppers hotline and claimed Ray had tried to kill him and that he had seen human bones on the farm. Initially skeptical of the claims, police decided to investigate further. Armed with a search warrant and canines, they arrived at the Copeland's farm. His last known stint with the law involved a livestock scam, so as police questioned Ray inside his farmhouse about that scam, authorities searched the property. It did not take them long to find five decomposing bodies buried in shallow graves around the farm. The autopsy report determined that the victims Paul Jason Cowart, John Freeman, Jimmy Dale Harvey, Wayne Warner, and Dennis Murphy had all been shot in the back of the head at close range. Authorities also found a register filled with the names of transient farmhands who had worked for the Copelands, and 12 of the names, including the five victims found, had a crude X in Faye's handwriting next to them. The forensic examination concluded the handwriting on the paper belonged to Faye. Ray was illiterate and incapable of even writing a basic list of names. Based on this, police suspected the Copelands in the murders of seven additional drifters. I have a photo of the victims. I'm not sure who is who. It looks like a newspaper clipping. But these are their five confirmed victims. Authorities found a twenty-two caliber Marlin bolt-action rifle inside the Copeland home, which ballistics tests proved to be the same weapon as the one used in the murders. The most disturbing piece of evidence, besides the scattered bones and rifle, was a handmade quilt Faye Copeland made out of the dead victim's clothing. She... She scrapped their clothes and made a quilt. <laughs> I'm sorry. that I mean, that's fucked up. And I tried to find a picture of it. And different stuff popped up in my Google search, but nothing that I was certain 
was the quilt. Because I don't know why, but I just really wanted to see it. I know that sounds fucked up, too. Faye Copeland claimed to know nothing about the murders and stuck to her story even after being offered a deal to change her murder charges to conspiracy to commit murder in exchange for information about the remaining seven missing men listed in her register. Although a conspiracy charge would have meant her spending less than a year in prison compared to the possibility of receiving the death sentence, Faye continued to insist she knew nothing about the murders. She said she had battered woman syndrome and was another one of Ray's victims. But the jury did not buy Faye's story, and she was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by lethal injection. Ray was also found guilty and sentenced to death. Ray first tried to plead insanity, but eventually gave up and tried to work out a plea agreement with the prosecutors. The authorities were not willing to go along, and the first-degree murder charges remained intact. Faye never testified against Ray and supported him until his death. He showed no emotion upon hearing his wife's sentence. Despite making history as the oldest couple to be given death sentences, neither Ray nor Faye was actually executed. Ray died in 1993 on death row, and Faye's sentence was commuted to life in prison. In 2002, Faye was granted compassionate release from prison because of her declining health, and she died in a nursing home in December of 2003. She was 83 years old. The little synopsis that I saw that mentioned the oldest couple on death row and a quilt being made out of dead men's clothes made me decide that, you know, this was one that I wanted to do. But like I said, it wasn't quite long enough. So um, with the suggestion of one of my best friends, Delana, I found another case for you guys, um, another killer couple. And this one was geographically uh, somewhat close to home. So we are going to talk about David Graham and Diane Zamora. On December 3rd, 1995, Texas teen Adrian Jones was in her bedroom for the night talking to her boyfriend when she received a call-on-call waiting from a friend. She clicked the line over, and as her mother walked by her room, she noticed Adrian's entire demeanor change as she spoke to this friend. Her mother, Linda, didn't think much of the call at first, but it ended up being a key part in cracking this case. Adrian, 16, was a beautiful, bright-eyed teen who took honors courses at Mansfield High School in Mansfield, Texas, a small suburban city in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Adrian spent a few hours each night studying after daily track practice. She was so exceptional at cross-country that she helped her team qualify for regionals. Even with a demanding schedule, Adrian also managed to work 20 hours a week at a local fast-food joint called Golden Fried Chicken. I have a picture of Adrian. Looks like a glamour shot. I'm here for it. She's gorgeous. Many students at Mansfield High School described Adrian as charming, attractive, and popular. However, Adrian also craved attention by her mother's admission. Though she especially liked recognition from attractive teen boys, Adrian was never considered promiscuous. She was considered a flirt, sure, but a respectable flirt who had clear boundaries. <laughs> Whatever that is, a respectable flirt. Boys were equally vying for her attention. During the early morning hours of December 4th, driving down an isolated country road, a farmer noticed a lifeless body woven into a barbed wire fence close to the Jones Pool Lake shore. 
in neighboring town Grand Prairie. The victim's head was caved in on the left side and bullet holes were clearly seen on her left cheek. The victim was later identified as Adrian Jones. Upon investigation, authorities determined that the victim was most likely attacked by surprise. Detectives described the killing as an up-close execution. She'd obviously been bludgeoned on her head, but authorities said it was the gunshots that killed her. Okay, this quote kind of kind of pisses me off, but it was in the story, so I'm going to say it anyway. And I'm sure those of you out there listening to this, the same thing will piss you off that's pissing me off. It takes a cold-blooded person to shoot a pretty young girl in the face from two to four feet away. That girl was mangled, and it was sickening to look at, one of the detectives on the case said. It takes a cold-blooded person to shoot anybody in the face from two to four feet away. It doesn't matter if she was a pretty young girl. I mean, I'm not minimizing what happened to her, but it's sickening no matter who it happens to. But I guess it's the 90s in Texas, so... There's your quote from the detective. Back at home, there were no indications that Adrian was abducted. Instead, it seemed to detectives that whoever killed her knew her, and she likely went willingly. With that in mind, Grand Prairie detectives Dennis Clay and Dennis Meyer set out interviewing kids at Adrian's school, trying to determine if anyone was angry with her or maybe even jealous of her popularity. They walked away with a long list of people to interview, but the investigation turned out to be more confusing and exhausting than they anticipated. The detectives interviewed a number of students, family members, co-workers, and acquaintances, but after lie detector tests and alibi checks, most were cleared. David Graham, a then 18-year-old cross-country athlete and battalion commander at Mansfield High School's junior ROTC program, was also questioned. David wasn't considered a suspect or even close to being on the detectives' radar, Although they both ran cross-country and saw each other occasionally during meets, hardly anyone realized that they knew each other. The connection happened when Linda contacted Adrian's track coach, seeking any information possible to help find her missing daughter. Going on the name Adrian gave her as the person calling in on December 3rd, Linda asked the coach if there was a David that ran cross-country. Linda clearly remembered the phone call and recalled her daughter mentioning, Oh, that was David from Cross Country, and he's upset about something. David seemed distraught by Adrian's murder, even openly crying at times. Authorities had already cleared him as a suspect, though. They turned their attention to and eventually arrested Brian McMillan. Brian, <laughs> this pisses me off too, but I left it in here. Brian, a local teen who battled severe depression, was reportedly obsessed with Adrian to the point of harassing her at work. I'm quite certain his depression had nothing to do with harassing Adrian. Yeah, I mean, obviously he has other mental issues, but I don't think depression was the source of that. Adrian's mother, Linda, said he began to bother her so much that when she saw him coming, she started ducking her head behind the counter. However, detectives only had circumstantial evidence at best, and after Brian passed a polygraph with flying colors... He was released from jail and cleared as a suspect. Back in the 90s when polygraphs meant everything. <laughs> Back at square one, authorities began delving into any tidbit of information that could help them solve the murder. They went back to a statement given by Adrian's little brother who said he saw a pickup truck drive away from the family home the night she disappeared. A friend told detectives that Adrian once showed her a photo of David in his pickup truck. 
The information was helpful, but there still wasn't enough of a connection to consider David as a suspect. At the time, David was in a relationship with Diane Zamora, a then 18-year-old student who attended the nearby Crowley High School. By August 1995, they were inseparable and soon after became engaged. Both had high aspirations. While David planned to become a fighter pilot, Diane planned on becoming an astronaut. They were focused, determined, and planned to conquer the world hand in hand. I have a picture of David and Diane together, if you want to go look at that. This is when they got accepted into their respective schools. And in this photograph, look like a sweet, happy couple. Girls that knew David described him as a good catch and one of the last cool guys on Earth. Apparently, Adrian agreed with the other girls so much so that she reportedly hooked up with him inside a vehicle at a school parking lot during a cross-country meet. Shortly after their hookup, David began feeling pangs of guilt, despite bragging to friends about his encounter with Adrian. The guilt aided him so much that he eventually confessed to Diane. Understandably, Diane was jealous and angry, but no one would have anticipated what was to come next, especially from two honor students without even a tardy slip on their flawless high school records. Nearly a year had passed since Adrian's murder, and both David and Diane graduated high school and moved forward with their lives. David was attending basic U.S. Air Force cadet training in Colorado Springs, Colorado, while Diane was attending the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Though apart physically, they communicated frequently. Diane's squad leader, Jay Guild, said Diane talked about David incessantly and would often have crying fits if she didn't hear from him. She missed him a lot. She often talked about him very strangely, as if she didn't trust him, but she still wanted to be with him. It was very odd, said Jay. David and Diane's obsessive relationship began falling apart, primarily due to Diane's paranoia and jealousy. She started confiding in Jay, flirting with him, and as they spent more time together, Diane invited him to listen to her secrets and private thoughts. At one point, curious about Diane's inability to trust David, Jay asked if he had ever cheated on her. When she said that David did indeed cheat on her in the past, he asked what she did about it. Diane responded that she asked David to kill the other girl. Jay didn't want to believe Diane, but she later told the same story to her two roommates. The roommates were as skeptical as Jay, but Diane's demeanor was so serious that they reported the conversation to a Navy chaplain. Within days, Texas detectives were on a plane to Annapolis. At first, Diane admitted nothing at all. She told detectives she'd made up the story to make herself look tougher among the other cadets. With no evidence and no confession, nothing could be done except to suspend Diane and send her home while they investigated the matter further. Instead of flying home, Diane flew to Colorado Springs and into the arms of David. Detectives weren't far behind. When they arrived at the U.S. Air Force Academy, they began drilling David, but he insisted that he had no idea why Diane would tell such an outrageous lie. Whether it was his own guilt or the endless questions from detectives, probably both, David cracked under pressure and confessed. He wrote a four-and-a-half-page confession letter that outlined the entire incident. He admitted to extreme guilt and shame, but insisted that Diane coerced him to kill Adrian by threatening to leave him if he didn't. I didn't have any harsh feelings for Adrian, but no one could stand between me and Diane, David wrote. David described the murder in gruesome detail, 
starting with how he picked up Adrian in a Mazda protege while Diane hid in the hatchback. As they drove down a country road, Adrian relaxed in the passenger seat while Diane snuck out of the hatchback with a dumbbell in her hand. She began brutally hitting Adrian over the head with the dumbbell, but David wrote that Adrian didn't die as they had hoped. Somehow, Adrian managed to escape. She opened the car door and attempted to run, but her injuries prevented her from getting too far. David grabbed a 9mm, followed her, and shot her twice, execution-style, in the face. The couple sped away and ended up at a mutual friend's house drenched in blood. Scared and confused, they asked the friend if they could change clothes and spend some time together. And paused to say, why did that friend not say anything? I'm sorry if my friend and their boyfriend, girlfriend, whomever, show up at my house drenched in blood, I'm going to have some questions. A jury convicted both David and Diane of murder, but the lengthy trial ended up turning the couple from devoted, obsessed lovebirds to enemies. To this day, Diane maintains that she's innocent, although she admits she was with David on the fateful night Adrian was murdered. She insists she only went to talk to her and that David acted alone during the killing. I didn't go out there with the intention of killing her, and when he did that, I didn't know what to do, Zamora said in a 2007 prison interview. Meanwhile, David still insists that if it weren't for Diane's ultimatum, the murder would have never occurred. He continues to express guilt about the murder and said that his prison sentence is appropriate despite being coerced by his former girlfriend. David and Diane both remain in prison, serving life sentences. Diane is currently housed at the William P. Hobby Unit Women's Prison, while David remains behind bars at the Darrington Unit Prison. I uh, remember hearing this case, bits and pieces, um, I think on another podcast, but I didn't really remember all the details, and I just thought this one was wild. Now it's time for a little palate cleanser with... This Week in the News. So I chose this story because because I thought it was very um, punning. So the headline says... Taylor Drift and Clark W. Blizzwald take top honors in Minnesota snowplow naming contest. This article was by Trisha Ahmed, and I found it at apnews.com. It's from January 30th, 2024. Richfield, Minnesota. Travelers in northwestern Minnesota can shake off their trepidation about hitting the winter roads, knowing Taylor Drift is clearing a path ahead of them. The snowplow named for Taylor Swift was the runaway winner of Minnesota's fourth annual Name a Snowplow contest with eight new names announced Tuesday. That's a thing. It's it's the fourth annual Name a Snowplow contest. Okay. Taylor Drift received 12,027 votes, nearly twice as many as second place finisher Clark W. Blizzwald, honoring the star character of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, one of my favorite holiday movies. In order of votes received, the other winners out of 49 finalists were Dolly Ploughton. I don't know how to say this, so I apologize. Wipahinte, which is a Dakota word for snowplow. Beyonce, 
You're Killing Me Squalls, Fast and Flurious, and Barbie's Dream Plow. Minnesotans vote in huge numbers for these, Governor Tim Walls said at a news conference. Thousands and thousands of Minnesotans come up with incredible creativity. The governor stood beside an orange-painted plow with a sticker bearing its new name, Barbie's Dream Plow. That's, that sounds really bad. <laughs> that sounds dirty, Barbie's Dream Plow. Okay, anyway, Walls thanked the state's snowplow drivers for braving dangerous conditions, working 12-hour shifts and clearing 200 miles or more at a time. The eight winning names were assigned to snowplows in different districts, with Taylor Drift going to one in northwest Minnesota and Barbie's Dream Plow going to another in the Twin Cities metro. The often icy state began naming its roughly 800 plows in 2020. More than three dozen names already graced trucks scraping snow off Minnesota highways. This is incredible. <laughs> That's a thing. Okay. The Minnesota Department of Transportation started the contest as a way to cheer people up during the COVID-19 pandemic, said Ann Meyer, a spokesperson for the agency. We have a lot of fun with this contest each year, but I also hope in its own way it increases the security and safety of the men and women who operate our snowplows, Meyer said. Meyer urged people to slow down and keep a good distance from the snowplow drivers. About 100 snowplows get hit each winter in Minnesota, she said. The Name a Snowplow contest is a way to personalize both the massive trucks and the people who drive them. Waipahinte is the first Dakota name applied to a snowplow by popular vote. With over 50,000 snowplow name submissions since 2020, the response in Minnesota has prompted states and cities across the country to hold similar contests to name snowplows, including Alaska, California, Ohio, and Massachusetts. Previous winners over the years in Minnesota include Plowy McPlowface, Darth Blader, Blizzard of Oz, Scoop Dog, and Han Snowlo. <laughs> I really like Scoop Dog. That's a good one. All right, guys. Um, don't forget to rate and review um, if you have any hump day treat suggestions or topic suggestions. You can uh, message me on Facebook or Instagram or send an email to odditiesandcuriositiespod at gmail.com. You will also find um, all the sources in the show notes. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for hanging out with me. Don't forget to visit Facebook and Instagram for episode picks and announcements. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, and Facebook. I want to give a huge shout out to Stephen Gwetzky for editing, Craig Weaver for music, and Amanda Higgins for art. Talk at you next week.